Galatians 3:19-22. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a man for a if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name's Brant. I'm one of the members here at the team on on the team at Christ City Church. It's my delight to be with you again this morning to bring the Word of God. And uh, man, I just want to say what a what a great set this morning to worship God together, to praise Him um, together. It's, it's just a joy. It's a, it's part of the the privilege that we get to to come together as Christians to worship the Lord, to give thanks to Him for His grace. As as we have that in our minds, I think we should ask the Lord for some help to to help us as we move in now into the preaching of the word to extend his grace to us there as well. Father, we do confess that we need you. Lord, oh, how we need you. Every hour we need you. Lord, we, we ask right now that you, by the power of your spirit, would quiet our hearts before you. Lord, that you would quiet our pride and our self, make us humble and submissive people who tremble at your word, who receive what you say with obedience, with faith, with joy, and with gratitude, Lord, knowing that, that these are the words of a God who loves us, of a God who is communicating to us for our good, for your glory. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask that you would do something this morning in our hearts that, that leads us to worship you more, to know you better, to follow Jesus in a fuller way. In his name we pray. Amen. So I'm wondering this morning, as we begin, if you've ever experienced something or experienced the, the, the moment of, of waiting for something, of longing for something that you desperately needed, and then the satisfaction and the joy of having then received that thing. I hear stories from my wife. She's a nurse. And uh, as anybody who's, who knows a nurse in, in the family will know, there's lots of interesting stories that they regale you with. And my wife, when we were in Kentucky, when we lived in the States for four years, she worked in cardiac ICU. And she would tell me stories about deep longing. And the stories would be stories of people who were coming in to the cardiac ICU to receive a heart or a lung transplant. And every day until they got that transplant, every day as they waited was a reminder of their, of their need. Was it a reminder of the desperate situation that they were in as, as they lived on oxygen tubes to breathe, as they couldn't sleep at night because the... Uh, their breathing wasn't very good and shortness of breath and, and coughing was a, a, was a common thing through the um, heart congestion they experienced. But the day would come when they'd get the phone call. The doctor would call and say, 
come in. It's, it's 2 a.m. It come in fast. The heart is in the air. It's coming from Boston. It's coming from wherever. It's going to be here soon. How soon can you be here? And Heather would tell me, my wife would tell me the way that those families would arrive with joy and happiness on their faces coming into the cardiac ICU unit. They'd have their, their suitcase in hand that has been packed for months, waiting by the door, waiting for the phone call. And they'd ro- arrive with joy. They'd be, she said, they'd be rolling up their sleeves, you know, kind of helping the nurse out to get the IV in, you know, looking forward uh, to whatever it needs to take to experience life, willing to experience discomfort because they valued so highly the cure that was available to them. So that's one situation of longing and of, and of satisfaction. But imagine this on the other hand. Imagine that you, by contrast, are walking around one day in Vancouver, and all of a sudden the ambulance, you know, sirens on, screeches to a halt right next to you, and a team of paramedics jump out, and they grab you, and they throw you onto the gurney. And you're, you're struggling at this point, thinking, what's going on? I'm, I'm fighting this. I, I don't know what's happening. They strap you down, hook you up to an IV, take you to the hospital. And on the way into the operating theater, the doctor meets you, your family doctor. And he says, oh, by the way, actually at the last appointment that you had with us, I noticed something. I noticed that you have a rare congenital heart disease. But it's okay. The heart actually just got you, got here, and, and we're going we're gonna to do the transplant. You'll be fine. But you start to hear him talk about open heart surgery. You hear him talk about a one-year recovery. You hear him talk about the pain that this will require. And you have second thoughts. You think, I feel fine. Actually, right now, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you know what? You might be right. But let me call you when I, when I want to. Let me call you when I've been convinced and I'm ready for it to come in to this situation. Why do I bring this up? Well, the reason is this. And it has to do with Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. Because logically, in Paul's argument, he's come to a place where he has to deal with major objections his readers would have had as they heard him. He just said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, which was the last verse that Fred read last week, he just said, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And he'd been telling us that God's promises, that his blessings, that the inheritance of life, instead of punishment and brokenness and death, that they were promised to Abraham and were received by Jesus. That he earned them. And then he says, he had said earlier in chapter 3, verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is about trusting in Jesus. Paul Paul maintains that we get the blessings that God had promised to Abraham by placing our faith in Jesus, the good physician, and not by works of the law. So faith, not works of the law. So here's the objection. Here's a tie-in point to, to the story that I just talked about. The objection is this. Okay, Paul, I hear you. But if if life and blessing come through the promise, why then the law? Why then the law? Why did God give it at all? And here's the thing I want you to hear. In Galatians 3, 19-22, Paul answers the law question by showing all of us 
that the law has to do with how God has prepared us to receive with joy and gratitude the radical life-saving intervention that he is going to give through the gospel. The law helps us to respond to heart surgery like the first patient and not like the second. So we're going to unpack this now in more detail. And as we do that, we're going to look at three important ideas that Paul brings up in these verses. We're going to look at, number one, sin. Number two, life. Number three, faith. So sin, life, and faith as we unpack this passage. Look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And our first point this morning, sin. Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Why then the law? Well, the first thing that we need to clarify here is what law we're talking about. Is this just the law in general written on human hearts or is it something else? Well, I think Paul's been pretty clear actually that that he's referring to not just living in general before God, uh, in general principles and general rules and regulations. He's talking specifically about the law that was mediated through Moses given by God to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. He's talking about the Torah, the Old Testament law. And why was it given? Well, look at verse 19. Here's the answer. It's really simple. The law was added because of transgressions. Paul says the law was introduced into human history after God's promises were given to Abraham because of transgressions. But I realized something this morning. I mean, I, I get to teach the Bible and talk about the Bible all the time, and I hardly ever use the word transgression. So I'm guessing that, that the last couple of days, that, that the word transgression hasn't been on your lips. Am I right? Yeah? Have you ever used the word transgression at a coffee shop? You know, you're like you, you roll up to matchstick or something. Yeah, transgression's really been on my mind today. Probably not. Probably not. So what does transgression mean? Like, what, what are we talking about in the first place? It's kind of an obscure churchy word. Um, well, the definition that Miriam Webster gives us in that dictionary is infringement or violation of a law, of a command, or a duty. So transgression has to do with a standard that exists somewhere and an infraction of that standard. But we should ask, what's the difference then between sin in general, maybe, and transgression. What's, what's going on here? Why does he use transgression when he could have used a bunch of other different Greek words that he didn't use? Well, let me try to explain it through an illustration. So once when I was in my teens, I went out innocently enough with a, with a friend. Um, he was my cousin, actually, a little older than I was. I was 16 years old. And we were, we were churchy kids, so going out with my, with my cousin, it wasn't like we were up to no good. We, we hung out with friends. We played games, we played some music, and we rolled in back home at my parents' place at 1.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. And this is before, this is before we had, we, this is before we had, you know, we had cell phones. We didn't use them all the time. It wasn't like a quick text. You just kind of, you know, you had the flip phone. You didn't, you hardly looked at that thing. So we never called. It didn't come into our 16-year-old brains that maybe we should call our parents and let them know where we are. Didn't cross our minds. So I come to the door, and is my dad happy with me? My, my dad is waiting up, and he is livid. He is livid. He is so upset. And I know that that upset state that he's in comes from worry. He's, he's really concerned about us. You know, I, I think we had the thing on vibrate, and he, he was calling, and we weren't even answering. 
But we come in all chipper and like, like nothing had ever been wrong. You know, like we hadn't done anything wrong. And all of a sudden we see my dad. And we're, oh my goodness. And then my dad proceeded to ground me for I felt in the moment was a very unjust period of time. And, uh, and then started to stipulate what would happen in the future. Lay out the stipulations, the parameters so that this didn't happen again. So that this sort of infraction wouldn't occur again. Call us. Call us, call us, call us, rule number one. You have a curfew and it's 10 p.m. on a weeknight. Okay, so special permissions if you're going to break that. You have to do that. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that being said, if I repeated my offense in the future, the action that I would have done would have been exactly the same. Right? The nature of the action was the same in both situations. But here's the thing. If I were to repeat the offense, I wouldn't just be doing something wrong. I would be transgressing an established boundary. I would have to look in the face of what my dad had laid out. I would have to stomp all over it and rebel against it. To circle around back to our text, professor of New Testament Ben Witherington III, I always wanted the third. Isn't that great? He explains transgression in this passage this way. He says, The law turns sin, which certainly already existed before and apart from the law. We know that, right? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It it was there. But it turns turns sin into transgression. That is, the law makes quite clear that every sin is a sin against God. Paul is saying that the law was added for the purpose of convicting us of our sin. For the purpose of making it explicit what we've done. To show us that every sin is ultimately an offense against God, as David said in the Psalms. Against you and you only have I sinned. But you know, I think we know this experientially. I think we've experienced this in our lives. I think we know it because we often distance ourselves from laws that are convicting to us. Have you done that? If, if you start to pursue something sinful, what's the first thing that you do? If you're like me, the first thing that you do is, is you show up to church a little less often. You start to create some space between your life and the light of God that would shine a spotlight on the nature of what you've done. This happens all the time here, even at Christ City Church. We remove ourselves from fellowship. We don't want to hear the preached word. We don't want to be in community groups. You know, you're, you're trying to, you're thinking of your, maybe your friends in this situation. You're wondering, where have they been? And the fact is they might be gone because the conviction of their sin was more than they wanted to deal with. The law is the honest mirror that all of us avoid. Have you guys gone to the mall and, and, and walked under the contoured lighting in the change room and you try on the clothes and think, I'm looking awfully good in this mirror. I'm looking too good in this mirror. What kind of, what kind of devilry lies in this, in this mirror in front of me? It's more like the mirror at the carnival, the skinny mirror, you know, than, than a real mirror. I think we've been admiring ourselves in those mirrors our whole lives, though. 
But then the law comes around, the law of God, and we see a true standard of righteousness. We see a true standard of what's right and wrong, not just according to my distorted mirror of my own preference, but according to the objective and the eternally true law of God that comes from his perfect and good and eternal character. And as a result of looking in that mirror, I'm pretty sobered up. Maybe you've done this before. You feel the conviction of sin through the law, and you think, is that who I am? Is that what I look like? Is, is that who I've sinned against? Am I this kind of person? I've been trying so hard to be a good person, but then I read, the, I read your word. You know, when you're confronted truly with your own effort and you're shown that no matter how hard you tried, you have failed, that's pretty hard. That's a brutal place to be. I think some people talk about their version of hell being a situation that no matter how hard they try by their own effort, they can't accomplish the desired end. But the law does that. It confounds our effort, and it shows us that God's righteous standard is beyond us. It shows us that that we've been beating ourselves against the cliffs of the law of God, and we haven't been able to accomplish the righteousness that he's called us to. We've actually earned his judgment. So we can ask ourselves, why then the law? Why then the law, right? This is an important question. Well, the law is an usher to lead the way to grace. Look at the words of Martin Luther. The law is a mirror to show a person what he is like. A sinner who is guilty of death and worthy of everlasting punishment. What is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish? This, that we may find the way to grace. The law is an usher to lead the way to grace. The law humbles us. It shows us who we truly are in all of the ugliness and the horror and the heinousness of our sin, and we're left reeling. But it does all of this for a specific purpose that's good and gracious and kind. The purpose is to lead us to Jesus. Look at the rest of verse 19. The law was added because of transgression, up to a point. Until the offspring should come in to whom the promise had been made. It was given to lead us to Jesus. If you think of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, they'd strived for millennia to live under the law of God. But they didn't succeed. Although we know that God was gracious to them, he provided for them that they could be saved through their faith. Every day living under the law, despite that, was a reminder that they weren't able to live under the righteous center that he required and to earn the blessing and the favor that he promised. They weren't able to do it. Even the best of them fell short. If you read God's, God's word, you can look at some standout sinners. But even if you look at the standout best guys in it, if we look at Abraham, we see that even Abraham doubted God and on two different occasions lent his wife out out of fear. You look at Moses, and he, he too had failings. And he sinned against God, and as a result, God didn't even let him enter into the promised land that he was in charge of leading the people up to. And then you can think of David, right? David, the king after God's own heart, who famously committed murder and adultery. 
under the spotlight of the law, all of Israel's sin is unavoidably awful and ugly and heinous and against a good and loving and gracious God who rescued them from Egypt, who gave them grace upon grace, who helped them along, who was with them, who offered himself and compassion to them. Why then the law? God's purpose was to lead them to recognize that they weren't able to save themselves. God did it to point them to the Savior that they needed. Point them to Jesus. Look at the way that Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 19, but also verse 23. Just two summary verses. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I love this. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law stops our boastful mouths. It stops our pride. It stops our self-righteousness. And holds us accountable to God. Then Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law makes that clear. And we are justified then by his grace as a gift. To the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It leads us to Jesus. Leads us to grace in him. So we see then that the law was added to show us our sin, to prepare us to Jesus. But then Paul expands this line of thinking in verse 21 by looking at another important consideration, by looking at life. Look at the second half of verses 19 to 21 and their second point with me. Paul writes, And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, that's key. If, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul starts out on this discussion, though, by talking about the idea of a mediator. So what's that about? What is he getting at there? Well, the mediator who put the law in place we know was Moses. Moses, who in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, who received the law through angels. He was the mediator who delivered the law to God's people Israel. And what Paul's interested in pointing out, though, is that the way a mediated law from God, how that pales in comparison to a law that is written on our hearts. He points out in verse 20, that an intermediary, to have a mediator, to have a series of mediators, that employs more than one. Or in the words of Anglican Bishop Stephen Neal, he says it this way. Because of this intermediary content, he says the law comes to the people third hand. Right? It comes God, then the angels, then Moses, the mediator, and then to the people. So the question is, what could be better than a mediated law that comes from God through Moses through the angels, to us? Well, the answer is the law that reflects the oneness of God because it takes root without a mediator. The law that comes from Emmanuel, who is God with us, but who is not merely God with us, but by his spirit is God in us. The law that is written on human hearts. When you have the one spirit of God residing in human hearts without a mediator, that's, that's so much better than a mediated law. That's the law that can bring life. That law, the New Testament calls the law of Christ, and it brings life where Moses' law only brought death. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, where Paul says, 
for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Or the letter, referring to the law of Moses, where the letter kills, but the spirit, the law of God, the, the presence of God by his spirit, without a mediator dwelling in our hearts, brings life. Why does the law kill? Because as you try to live under its requirements, your lifeless heart inclines away from God. The law doesn't bring life. What the law does, though, is it exposes death. It shows us where our hearts are ultimately interested in going. Because the thing is about you and I is that we can conceive theoretically, right, about an ultimate good. Right? We can think, ultimately, it would be a good idea to follow God. But right now, in the immediacy of my life, what I really want is this thing over here. For the ancient Israelite, you can imagine them. Ah, yes, God has been gracious and good to Israel. We have this law. I see his glory coming down in the temple. Man, it would be good to know this God. I really see that. I mean, he's a gloriously good, powerful God. He rescued us from Egypt. I should walk with him. But right now, this cult prostitute is calling my name. And I'm thinking about worshiping another God. And besides, she's got bacon on it. Maybe that's a reach. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but we do this, right? We see the immediacy, and, we're, and we, we long for what is immediately satisfying rather than what is ultimately satisfying. Maybe we do that too, though, don't we? Right? Is it true that we look at, at God's law, and we see that it would be a good thing to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. It would be a good thing to love my neighbor as myself. It'd be a good thing to abide with him richly. But right now, Netflix. But right now, my social media accounts, my next career enterprise, my next workout, my next purchase. The law brings death because it exposes the problem of our human hearts. Through the law, God has called us up this mountain of obedience and love and righteousness. It's like we're pedaling up Seymour. We're pedaling up Cyprus. He's called us to the top of it, but we don't have a chain on the bicycle. Right? And we're freewheeling backwards as we try hard as we can to live up to his righteous standard. And it's not working out for us. The solution? We need a chain on the bicycle. We need a heart that will love God as he's created us to. And that life, that new heart, it doesn't come from the law. Life only comes through Jesus. As he makes us new, as he gives us a new heart, as he pours his spirit of life into us so that we follow God because we want to. Because deep within us, he's changed our desires to pursue him, to love what is good, to long for what is holy and righteous, to live for him. Imagine living under the law before Jesus came. Imagine if you were an Israelite, what, that, what would that look like? 
Imagine if you responded to the law even in the right way that God had created us to respond to the law before Christ came. I think it would look like this. I think under the weight of the law, we'd see the nature of our disease. And we'd look to the surgeon who can deal with our hearts. We'd see that ever since the beginning of the Bible, God has been promising that he can save us by his grace as we trust him in faith. And he would speak to us and he would say, have faith. A new heart is coming. Live right now in the disease, but trust me, I'll save you by your faith. And at the right time, I will provide the savior that you need. I think you sense this pathos in the Old Testament all throughout. I think especially in the later prophets. As they long and look for the Messiah that could save them and that could bring them life as they experience death under the law. And then, and then, at exactly the right time, what does God do? He sends his son. Exactly as he planned to do before the foundations of the earth were established. He sent him at the right time. So we'd be prepared to receive him in faith. Jesus comes and he brings life. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you long for life? Do you long for life? Do you know what the first step to embracing life is? It's knowing that you're not righteous. The first step to embracing life is embracing the mirror, the accurate mirror, and standing in front of it, not the skinny mirror, the true mirror, and letting it wash over you with its weight of conviction. Letting that truth press down into your heart and creating you a longing to be righteous, a longing to be made right before God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6, I love this verse. Memorize this verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for, here's the promise, they shall be satisfied. God cares about the heart. And when you look into the perfect law, you start to see that your heart doesn't look so good. You see that it's marred deeply by sin. But if you accept that, if you embrace that truth, if you humble yourself, then from that place you'll start to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only Jesus can give to you. You'll long to the life, long for the life that he can create in you by his spirit. You know what Jesus promises in John 10 verse 10? Memorize this verse as well. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's the promise of a merciful and gracious Savior to you this morning. I think this is an opportunity for us to repent of our moralism. I think it's an opportunity to repent of the way that, that we have put that, that fake mirror in front of us, that we try to live by our own standards to achieve the righteousness that God requires. We need to repent of saying, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I can do it. I don't need God. Saying that is like you're the patient in the first scenario with a heart congestion who can't sleep at night because of their disease, wheeling yourself into the emergency room, into the operating theater, and trying to give yourself a new heart. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. 
brothers and sisters, if your hearts are cold, if you aren't growing in Christ, maybe the reason for that is that you're not thirsting for him. And maybe the reason for that is that you've, you've kind of taken God's word and you've pushed it a long ways away from you. That you're not in it. That you're not standing before the true mirror. That you're not memorizing it. You're not reading it. You're not maybe a dedicated member committed to, to coming to a gathering where we worship singing songs, the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Where we read the word of God. Where we preach the word of God. Maybe it's because you're not in a place where, where you're committed to being with brothers and sisters who can call you to repentance. Don't run from the mirror. Read it. Memorize it. Love it. And I think always pray this prayer. Look at Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. I was praying this this morning for myself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that God would show you who you really are. Cry out to him to convict you so that you can see his grace. Conviction is not a scary thing. Do you guys know this? Conviction is not a scary thing for a Christian. And the reason for that is that, is that as we are convicted, as we look honestly in the mirror as a Christian, we know the grace of Jesus. And all of our sin, all of our failures, it drives us to Jesus to receive what he has given for us, to take hold of the righteousness that he provides for us as he has taken the, the curse and the punishment for us as well. You know, through this whole section, and through the whole book of Galatians, Paul, Paul's pleading with us, isn't he? He's pleading with us. He's arguing with us. He's trying to persuade us to take our hands off of our own human effort by works of the law and to, to move them and to hold on to Jesus instead. And here he does that too. And our third point of consideration is right along with that. It's this point of consideration of faith. Why the law? Faith. Look at verse 22 with me. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I want you to see something really, really important here. Because there are two aspects to what Jesus has done that are worthy of our faith in him. That are worthy of our faith trusting that he has provided the salvation that we couldn't provide for ourselves. The first aspect is what we talked about a few weeks ago. That that idea that, that Jesus, that he died for us. That Jesus, that he took the curse and the punishment of sin that we couldn't bear upon his shoulders. That's the first side of the salvation that he's accomplished that we can receive by faith. But the second thing that he's done that we receive by faith is this, and which this verse speaks to. Jesus not only took our curse, but he was also perfectly obedient in every way under the law in order to earn under the law in covenant with God the blessing and the promise that we couldn't earn. So another way of translating verse 22 that sheds light on this is this. Look at verse 22 in this light. So that the promise, that's the the promise made to Abraham, because of not just faith in Jesus Christ, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
the faithfulness that he has where we didn't. His faithfulness to the covenant, his faithfulness under the law, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. What this passage is saying is that Jesus has been faithful in every area where you and I haven't been. He never sinned. No deceit was on his mouth. In Hebrews 4 verse 15 it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived under the law, was tempted like us, but you know what happened? Or what didn't happen, rather? The law didn't imprison him under sin like it imprisoned us. Jesus finishes the race, and God looks at him and says, in Matthew 3, verse 17, Well done. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know the good news this morning? It's that because of the righteousness of Jesus, as you're joined with him in faith, as his righteousness is accredited to you in faith, God looks at you with the very love and pleasure that he has in Jesus. He looks at you and says, I am willing to bless you in Jesus with every blessing that he alone has earned. I'm willing to bless you and give you the inheritance that I have prepared for my son. You can share in that. You can share in that. So why then the law as we close this morning? What stands out to me most about the stories my life, my wife, not my life, my wife told me, what stands out to me most about the stories my wife told me was the way she described the joy on those patients' faces. That's incredible to me. Just think about that for a second. They came in knowing that in a matter of hours they would have a saw rip through their sternum. And they came there with joy. They came knowing that in a matter of hours they would be on a road to over a one-year recovery, if all things go well, to have a heart transplant. And they came with joy. Why? Because they knew that life was around the corner. They've been waiting and they've been suffering. Every waking moment, a reminder of how sick they were, of how deep the disease was. And they came to receive what they couldn't bring to themselves. You know, coming to Jesus and receiving his life, receiving his righteousness, it's a little bit like that. Because coming to Jesus, though it brings life, it can also be excruciating, can't it? And even though the life is so worth it, we should ask ourselves, why is it that it's so painful to come to him? How come this is not an easy thing to do? Well, it's painful because each of us are so proud. It's painful because we want to always feel, I think, deep in our hearts that we don't need him. That we can do it by ourselves. That we can save ourselves. That we can live by our own fabricated morality. All the while, we're just slowly wasting away. Entering into the hospital of God's grace is the death of pride. 
you can only come through those doors if you've thrown up your hands in desperation pleading for his mercy. You can only come through those doors if you've embraced the severity of your disease. You can only come through those doors if you're willing to put your life in faith into the hands of the one who can give life when all that you have is death. You can only have that life if you're willing to put your life in faith into the hands of the one who is righteous where you are not, into the hands of the one who's borne your punishment that you could not bear, and trust him. And trust him. Why the law? Do you see what this is doing? It's shining a spotlight on Jesus. Do you see that? Who's the hero of that story in the hospital? It's a surgeon. Shining a spotlight on Jesus. God's purpose for the law was that we would be fully prepared to receive the, the, the grace that he gives us in Jesus with joy, with worship, with thanksgiving, with praise. Why the law? I think we could summarize it with Ephesians 1 verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we worship you. And we thank you, God, as those that know your love to us through Jesus, we rejoice that you've been so gracious to sinners like us. We are each, in our own way, the worst of sinners, but you have loved us with an everlasting love. We praise you and we thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for grace. Thank you for Christ. Help us to receive him in faith now, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.